Welcome to Coffee House Theology, Wednesday night. Glad to have you here. We've, we've now made, we've survived. We're now in Philippians 5. Just kidding. Philippians only has four <laughs> chapters, so yeah, that'd be fairly confusing to us, wouldn't it? Well, Romans 5, that's kind of a follow-on, ish, ish. Not really. Anyway, welcome. Glad y'all are here tonight. We are we are continuing to talk about the goodness of God, um, and we are now going to do Romans. We're going to do uh, several, I guess, four or five chapters of Romans through through this section. I really wanted to teach Romans after teaching Philippians, but just couldn't. I couldn't do it justice uh, in what we have left in the semester. So we're going to do some select verses. There's also some other places I want to talk about. I want to talk about the goodness of God in the Ten Commandments. Right, how good God is in the Ten Commandments, because we think of those things so negatively and realize that that is God's good for us. And so, several places in the Old Testament, the Psalms, we like to go. Through, I'd like really like to go through. So that's kind of where we're heading the rest of the semester. Jay is away from us today. Is Jay and Tanya's anniversary, and so wisely he is spending time with his wife. Um, so we well, we need to be thankful to have a pastor that's wise like that, right? Because sometimes people commit themselves to church or to work or whatever to the expense of things like their marriage. And you see that a lot in pastors. And Jay is very, very faithful in his marriage. Very, very faithful to put, put things in the right perspective. Right? In the perspective God gives us. And that's a, that's a God-honoring thing and something that should be celebrated. Right? But that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Which means you're stuck with me. And we're going to ask easy questions again tonight. Right? Everybody nod. Right, easy questions tonight, because it's just me up here by myself. So uh, let's see, Jay's last sermon as the campus pastor and teacher, campus teaching and preaching pastor at Station Hill will be this Sunday. And then he also, when I talked to him this morning, he wanted me to tell you that that does not mean he's fading away from Coffeehouse Theology, because he's been gone the last two weeks. He'll be back next week to do Q&A, and then I think he's going to teach on the 27th. And so that'll probably be his last teaching act here at the, here at the church at Station Hills. So that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, but pray for us through that. Uh, tonight we're doing Romans 5. This has been a, let's pray and we'll get to this and we'll talk about it because I'm too, way too excited. All right, Father God, we're, we're thankful. We're thankful for grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Uh, thankful for how good you are. Holy cow. Um, and, and thankful for all the ways you are good to us. And so, Father, give us eyes and hearts to see your goodness, to seek out your goodness, to seek first the kingdom of God. Because you know what we need, and you will give it to us. So let us have faith and believe. As we go, as we go through Romans 5, this has been a, a chapter that our congregation, our body, has leaned on through the years. And so we're thankful to get to look at thankful to see how there is purpose in suffering. Right, that perseverance yields character, and character yields hope, and hope will not fail us. And so, Father, let us let our lives reflect that reality. Do not let us be the same people that came in that leave. When we encounter your truth, we should be changed. And so, Father, change us to look more like Jesus tonight. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, we're doing, and we are doing Romans 5. I, I, uh, yeah, I actually have a whole teaching on um, the intro to Romans because we did this right when we, walked, caught, when we walked through the Bible. So I have about an hour's worth of material introducing us to Romans. So I'm going to try not to take an hour to introduce us to Romans so we can actually get to Romans 5. Um, yeah, let's, let's just get started. Oh, slide, I'm so sorry. We have a slide up there. See, y'all got to keep me straight. I'm, I'm terrible at this stuff. They will uh, prevent us from asking any questions. 
That's right. Let's see. You had my secret plan. That was my secret plan. Um, okay, so our Slido room number right is 29, is that 17866? Is that pretty good? All right. It's like an eye test. It gets smaller every week. I swear it does. Um, and again, it was slido.com. Enter that code in or scan the barcode. You can ask questions, like questions, and move it up to the top. Um, and then, then I'll try to answer them when, when, this, when, we're, when we get done with this. Um, so we remember, right, we're going through the goodness of God. Right? And I'm sorry about this. This thing keeps pulling on me. That God is good, right? God is the standard of good, and what God does is good. And God being the standard of good is critical, right? It's not what's necessarily what we think is good or what we think is good for us, right? It's what God says is good, and we submit our lives to Scripture. We submit our lives to what he says, right? We are obedient in that. Um. So Romans is, is a fantastic book, right? It's kind of Paul's uh, theological treatises. Um, he he uh, he dictated this to Tertius, um, who right? Paul did this dictating to to his scribe. Uh, Paul is at the seaport of Kinchira at Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. So he just written Second Corinthians. Uh, he's finished an important stage of his missionary work, right, from Jerusalem all the way around to Achillium, uh, having fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And, he, and this is, so he's gone the full circuit, right? He's now done the full circuit of churches. Paul is ready for his next challenge. And he plans to go back to Jerusalem to bring a collection for the mother church, and they're hopefully hearing some of the Jew-Gentile divide. And then he, is, he has his sights set on church planting in a new territory in Spain. Right? But before he goes to Spain, he wants to come to Rome and spend some time encouraging the church and uh, building support for missions. I love this quote. What is most significant for our understanding of Romans is the sense that Paul gives us of having reached an important transition point in his ministry career. He's been preaching the gospel for almost 25 years. He has planted thriving churches over much of the northeast Mediterranean part of the Roman Empire. He's hammered out his theology on the anvil of pastoral problems and debates with opposing factions. He thus writes Romans during a lull in his ministry at a time when he can reflect on what he's come to believe and what it may mean for the church, right? And so what he's written, right, in a letter, an epistle, right, that's a blend of addressing specific issues but with broader application in mind. It's a treaty, right? It's Paul addressing basic theological issues against the backdrop of early Christianity with a reference to some of the specific challenges of the church at Rome. It's also occasional theology. Some call this work a systematic theology, but it is not, right? It's not a complete theology. But Paul focuses on issues of relevance to this time and place, uh, where it's written to the church at Rome, right? Acts doesn't tell us how the Roman church started, but in Acts 2.10, it tells us there were residents of Rome there at Pentecost. So they were likely among the 3,000 converts that day. Um, in AD 49, Emperor Claudius uh, expels the Jews from Rome over arguments about Christius, which most believe is Jesus as Christ, meaning the leadership of the Roman church changed overnight. Right? By now, eight years later, the Jews have been allowed to return, but this has called, for, caused further tension in the church. Um, how? Um, Romans is written in, it with several kind of basic structures. And one, it's a diatribe. 
right? The, it's, the, it's the argumentation Paul employs is patterned after a form of ancient rhetoric known as diatribe, in which a teacher tried to persuade a student of the truth of a given philosophy through the imagined dialogue, usually in the form of question and answer. And we see that, right, as he writes through, through Romans, how that structure comes in. Logic. The nature of argumentation is that it follows a logical sequence of ideas, but don't assume that Paul believes that this means as Christians, all Christians have to go through the same sequence of Christian experience. For example, even though the role of the Holy Spirit isn't examined thoroughly till chapters 7 and 8, don't assume that Paul is saying that the Spirit isn't at work throughout the entire process of salvation, right? Um, and then a cascading effect, and, and this is actually a quote from Jay in his teaching uh, back in 2020. He says, I think the most effective way to read Paul is to imagine yourself in a conversation with someone who is passionate and brilliant, the kind of person who you can talk to for hours and then ask how the time went so fast. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul's thoughts carry him from one point to the next, to the next, to the next. I can just picture his poor scribe trying to keep up with Paul as he's passionately dictating this letter, right? Can you imagine what, as Paul, you kind of hear him get wound up, right? You can imagine trying to keep pace with that when you're writing all this stuff down. Um, why? Why was, Rome, was, was, was Romans written? Uh, to pray, proclaim God's good news, right? The key, the key theme of, of Romans is in one word, gospel, right? That's the key theme of, of Romans. Um, it's called by the name four times just in the first seven verses. Um, Paul and, and, and the gospel, right, is God, man, Christ, and response. And that's the heart of Romans, and we never get over it. We can only allow God to take us deeper into it. He did it to fulfill his calling as a slave of Christ, as an apostle and a chosen instrument, right? And we see how Paul works those, those things out through the letter. He wrote it to strengthen the church, right? We hear him tell us that, right, that as you go through struggles, that's okay because that perseverance will form character and that character will form hope. And that's how we mature, right? That's how we become stronger as Christians. Um, and he wrote it to prepare for mission. Paul knows he's got something else to do. And so this is kind of why he writes this. This is where he is at, at this point in, in his journey and in his teaching. Um, he does it to declare the power of the gospel, right? He's obligated, he's eager, and he's not ashamed. Right? We, we should be the same. Right? We are obligated in our faith. Right? And we should be eager and unashamed of the gospel. And not unashamed of the gospel for it's God's power to salvation. Right? We know what the gospel can do. And so how could we keep that to ourselves? If we really believe the gospel is what it is, right? If we really believe the gospel is what it is, how do we keep that to ourselves, right? And it's also the gospel that reveals God's righteousness, that reveals God knows what's right, knows what, what reality is. And I, gave you a, I think I gave you a brief outline of Romans, right? That, that the first, you know, basically... Two and a half chapters, right, is on sin. Uh, 321 to 5 is salvation. 6 to 8 is sanctification. Um, 9, 10, 11 is sovereignty. And then 12 through 16 is service, right? And we see how these sections play out. And what we're getting, we're getting ready to go through 5, 6, 7, and 8, and then probably do 12. Um, and we'll see, we'll see right, what we're going to see is kind of the outcome of salvation tonight and then run through the process of sanctification in the next three weeks. And then look at service, right, particularly our Christian, right, our, kind of the application of the gospel in our lives. And I think we're good. All right. So...
Romans, right, so we're starting Romans 5. So Romans 1 through 4. Um, it starts off with the gospel, right? Romans, Romans 1, right? The first 17 verses. And Paul talks about it. It is the gospel only and always. That's the focus of everything they do. And then we get to the second half of, of, Rome, of Romans 1, right? We see the spiral downward, right, of sin, right? And we, and we look at that and go, man, right, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? We see that. And we, and, and we see people, we talk about they. And I strongly recommend when you read the second half of Romans 1 that you do it with a mirror. Because you know what separates us from that description? God's grace. Right? The only difference between you and whoever you think the most horrible person in the universe is, is God's grace. Right? We are all equally fallen. We are all capable of any sin. So when we get all kind of judgy on that, right? Stop and look in the mirror. Remember who God is. Remember who we are. Right? Because they think all these things will save them. We thought all these things would save us, right? At some point. Even now sometimes, right? We'll put our faith in things other than God. Right? And he says, you know, not even the law is going to save you. Right? These things that the Jews are, are so adamant on, that's not even going to save you. Right? What's the only thing that's going to save you? Faith. Right? We're justified by faith. That's what he says in, in Romans 3. And we're, we're all children of Abraham. Right? We get to call Abraham our father. Right? That's, that's a big deal. That we get to call Abraham our father. Right? And so now we go to the beginning of Romans 5. And what's the first word? Therefore. And what do we ask? We see a therefore. What's it there for? And we've all been taught by Jay long enough that we, we got that one figured out, right? So, so let's, look at Romans, let's look at Romans 5. We get on 1 through 4. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, the first half of Romans 1 is in I, and the second half is in they. Then chapter 2 shifts to you. Chapter 3 shifts back to they. The first half of 4 is all who believe are called the offspring of Abraham. But in 4.16, Paul introduces the first person plural by designating the, Abraham the father of us all and our father. The rest of chapter 4 maintains the first person plural. Then Paul begins chapter 5 with a sequence of we, right? This usage shows the unity we have in Christ, particularly Jew and Gentile, as we have all been justified by faith. The unity of God's people carries on into the second half of chapter 5 as Adam and Christ are contrasted. So let's read 1 through 11. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Though through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verses 1, right, 1 to 18 through 320 expounds on the need for justification. And then the rest of chapter 2 through 4 describes the way of justification. And now chapter 5 describes it, and I love a commentator called this, blissful consequences, which I think is a really fantastic description of chapter 5, enlarging the blessedness mentioned in 4.6. The whole paragraph's tone is set in, therefore we have been justified through faith. Right, We have peace with God. You know what the one thing you need more than anything else in this world? Is to be at peace with God. Because once you're set right with him, everything else is put in place. Right? We have peace with God. The pursuit of peace is an almost universal human obsession. But the most fundamental pursuit of peace is peace with God. The reconciled relationship with God is the first fruit of justification. And this peace gives us friendship with God and confers the status of righteousness on us. The peace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivered to delivery and death and resurrection from death made this possible. This is the heart of the peace the prophets foretold as the supreme blessing of the messianic age, the shalom of the kingdom of God inaugurated by the Prince of Peace. We have peace with God now. This is not a subjective feeling, but objective reality, a present possession. This is the way things really are, right? If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you have peace with God. That's reality, right? And we like to live our lives according to what's real, right? Not what we feel. This is the reality. You have peace with God. Do you live a life like you're at peace with God? Do you live your life in that reality? I don't either. Right? But this is what's real. This is what's true. We, We are at peace with God. We are standing in grace. The little translation, right, through him, Christ, we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we've taken our stand. Uh, Grace is normally God's free and unmerited favor, right? But here it's our privileged position, acceptance by him. Two verbs are in relation to grace, denoting our entry into it and and our continuance in it. We have gained, right, gained access. And that occurs only two other places, and that's in Ephesians 2.18 and 3.12. It says, uh, for through through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then 3.12 is, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Right? So in the better translation than access, right, would probably be introduction because that acknowledges our utter unfitness to enter and our need for someone to bring us in. Right, you've been introduced to somebody. Right, a lot of times you're introduced to somebody you could not meet on your own, right? You ask somebody in business, you ask somebody in, in artistry, right, to, to make an introduction for you. 
That's what this is. Christ introduces us, right? Allows us because we are unfit to enter. Um, the Greek word has a certain touch of formality to it, right? Although it's uncertain whether this imagery is of a person being brought into God's sanctuary to worship or a king's audience chamber to be presented to him. I think either, either one works. Um, we've taken our stand firmly. I don't know, this, uh, the quote out of one of the commentaries says, justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. The perfect tenses express this. Our relationship with God into which justification has brought us is not sporadic, but continuous, not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign or politicians with the public. No, we stand in it for it is the nature of grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen? Right? That's how we live our life. Right? We're, 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 and that, what, I've really, what I really want you to get out of these first few verses, this is establishing what's real, what reality is. And again, we so rarely live like this. I so rarely live like this. I, you, know, I'm, you probably. But right? We so rarely live like this. Right? And this is what's true. This is what's real. I mean, it, we're not talking about anything that's hard to read or hard to understand. It's just hard to live, right? And we can, we can live the way we live this, right? So the power of the Holy Spirit given us. And we believe. And we adjust our lives accordingly, right? We adjust our lives accordingly. Mm, I think it's, that's awesome. Uh, we rejoice in, the, in our hope of the glory of God. Christian hope, right, Elpis, is not uncertain, but a joyful, confident expectation resting in the promises of God, as we saw in Abraham, right? The object of our hope is the glory of God, the radiant splendor, which will be fully displayed in the end. His glory is continuously revealed in the heavens and, and the earth. It has been uniquely manifest in Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, most notably in his death and resurrection. Right, one day the curtain will be raised and the glory of God will be fully disclosed. Right, and first Jesus will appear in great, and when that happens, right, Jesus will appear in great power and glory. It's Mark 13, 12, 26, and, and it says, And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Uh, second, we will not only see his glory, but be changed into it. Right, first John 1, 1, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, right? Become, because we shall see him as he is. Amen. Right? When Christ, who is at your life, appears, and you will appear to, with him in glory, right? And so he will be glorified into his holy people, right? Then redeemed human beings who are created to be the image and glory of God, but now through sin fall short of the glory will again and in full measure share in the glory of God. Right? That's our destiny. How cool is that? How cool is that? Third, right, even the groaning creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom of the children of God, right? The renewed universe will be suffused with, with its creator's glory, right? That's just awesome. 
Um, and, and all of this is included in the glory of God and is therefore the object of our hope. We exalt in it, and our vision of future glory is a powerful stimulus to present duty. Right? Because we know how this thing's going to end. You can make it through almost anything if you know how it's going to end up. Right? My, my nephew was a SEAL, so he went through BUDS, and this was before the 2008 modification. So this was, it was incredibly difficult. They started with literally thousands of people, and 30 people made it through. And I asked him, it was, it was six months, and he was cold and wet. Every morning he would get up, they would take a shower in 40 degree water for 30 minutes to lower their body temperature. They'd run two miles in sand, get to food. They would give them no utensils, so everything they ate had sand in it. I kept asking him, how did you make it through that? How, how did you do that? He said, well, Uncle Brian, I knew that October 31st was going to come. He said one of two things would happen. I'd be dead or I'd be done. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, right? And that, and, and that was, right? But if you can see the other side, the reason he made it through that was he could see the other side, right? One or two things going to happen. I think, thank goodness he didn't die, right? That's the Lord's problem, Lord's privilege. He, he made it through, right? But he said, if you know what's coming, right, you can endure almost anything. Do we know what's coming? You better believe it. So that makes our duty now, right, even more understandable. All right. Um, and so we pause right after these, after these first three affirmations about blessedness of the justification and reflect. The first, the fruits of justification relate to the past, present, and future. We have peace with God as a result of our past forgiveness. We are standing in grace, our present privilege. We rejoice in the hope of glory, our future inheritance. Peace, grace, joy, hope, and glory. Sounds idyllic, right? Right, until Paul's fourth affirmation. We also rejoice in our sufferings, right? The next part, right? Sufferings are tribulations, uh, literally pressures, referring in particular to the opposition and persecution of a hostile world. Our attitude toward sufferings, we are not to endure them with stoic fortitude, but rejoice in them. Yikes. This is not masochism, which I thought was really interesting, where one finds pleasure in pain. We recognize that there is a divine rationale behind suffering, right? First, suffering is the path to glory, right? It was so for Christ, and so it is for Christians. We share in Christ's sufferings to also share in his glory. Hence, we rejoice in both. If suffering leads to glory in the end, it leads to maturity in the meantime, right? We know this, especially from the, from the experience of God's people in every generation, right? Suffering produces perseverance, right? Endurance. We could not learn endurance without suffering because without suffering, there'd be nothing to endure. By the way, if the Lord had given Brian to write this part of Romans, I would have picked napping, right? Napping yields character, right? I need a little character. I think I'll go lay down, right? That's much more pleasant, Right? God didn't let me write this, which is unfortunate. I don't think it's unfortunate. It's actually because it's true. I'd rather it be true, right? So suffering produces perseverance. Next, perseverance produces character, right? Dokumi is the quality of a person who has been tested and has passed the test. It is a mature character, the temper of a veteran, as opposed to that of a raw recruit. And then the last link in the chain is that character produces hope. 
Perhaps because the God who is developing our character in the present can be relied upon for the future too. That's one of the things Mike Glenn, our senior pastor that's retiring, always said, you know, the Lord, the Lord takes us through things. And we always go, right, we get there and we're like, Lord, get me through this. And we want him to pick us up and put him on the other side, right? That, who's my vote, right? Yeah, right, for, right, that's what we want. But he doesn't. He walks through that. Why does he let us walk through that? Because he wants us to know we don't have to be afraid of that. Because God will walk us even then. And so we can go to our brothers and sisters, and when we see them starting to walk through the same valley, you know what we can say? God brought me through this. And God will bring you through this, right? So we get to be a witness to each other. How spectacular is that? Have you thought about that? You want goodness of God? That's goodness of God right there. That he will take the hardest times in our lives and use us to witness to the power of God to other people heading into those places. Right? That is the goodness of God. Right? That is the goodness of God. I think this one's fascinating. Suffering is the primary context in which we become assured of God's love. Many will posit the contrary, right? That suffering makes them doubt God's love. But consider Paul's argument from perseverance to character, character to hope. And now he adds that hope does not put us to shame. Our hope rests in the steadfast love of God. The reason our hope will never let us down is that God will never let us down. His love will never give up. If he pursued us through our wickedness, right? If he pursued us through our wickedness to be saved, how much more? We're getting into the much more statements. I love the much more statements, right? We're getting the much more. How much more, right, will he take us home? Right? How much more will he take us home? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Sorry. So how are we sure of God's love, Right? God poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given us. And this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans. Sorry about this. Uh, The Holy Spirit is God's gift to all believers. It is not possible to be justified by faith while at the same time being regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? You have to have all of that. The Holy Spirit was given us, given to us at a particular time, at conversion, when we were justified. Uh, one of the Holy Spirit's distinctive ministries is to pour God's love into our hearts, and it remains a permanent flood. The Holy Spirit makes us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. Right? Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's good stuff. There is little, if any, appreciable difference between being assured of God's fatherhood and of his love. God demonstrated his love by Christ's death on the cross, right? Romans 3.25 shows us that God demonstrated his justice on the cross, right? When God put forward a propitiation by his blood to be received in faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. To grasp this, we must remember that the essence of love is giving. Right? That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? Moreover, the greatness of his love is measured partly in the cost of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the receiver. Benjamin and I went back and forth on this. I'm going to present this and we can talk about it in a little bit. The greater the cost of the gift and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love seems to be. Measured in these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. As in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing but judgment. My problem with that scale is it is so infinite with what God did. It's hard to compare the cost, right, and the worthiness. We are so unworthy, and Christ is so precious. It's hard to put that on any scale together, right? And that's kind of our theology. When Benjamin and I can get theology nuance stuff, that's the real problem we had was getting, putting that on a scale because it, there's just nothing we have that compares to that. Right? There's no, no way we can understand that. Right? We, we just don't have it. We don't have anything to measure things like that, right? Uh, the costliness of the gift is clear. Verses 6 and 8 say Christ died. Verse 10 clarifies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Uh, God had formerly sent prophets and angels, but now he sends his only son. And in giving his son, he gave himself, right? We think of that parable. And the landowner sent his servants and sent his servants. And finally, he sent his son, and they killed him too. Right? Mm. Mm. And what about the worthy, worthiness of the recipients? Four epithets. We are sinners. Amen? All right? We are sinners. We are ungodly. Right before Christ had in us, we were ungodly. Some of us seemed righteous. I was raised in the church, right? If you looked at my moral life up until I was saved, you would have said, wow, that's a godly person. But that was all self-righteousness, right? It was all done because that was where I was raised, because that's the way my parents expected me to act, right? It was a culture, right? Was, we, we call it in our house forced external compliance, Right? When you, when you, well, that's why so many kids that grow up in Christian homes go to college and go nuts. Because when they were home, it was forced external compliance. And again, I'm an engineer, I know. And so right, when you stop applying the force, what happens? You stop getting compliance. Right? That was why we drilled our kids theologically. We drilled our kids philosophically growing up. Because it doesn't matter what my faith is for them. Right? It matters what their faith is. When, they, when Benjamin walked into Princeton, when Michael walked into Miami, it mattered what their faith was because that was when it was getting tested. Right? They're no grandchildren of Christ. Right? Their faith was tested when they walked through those doors. Their faith was tested in high school. You know, Benjamin will tell you that, that, that Middle Tennessee was no different a test than Princeton. It's just at least at Princeton you know who you're dealing with. Because there's still a cultural advantage to being a Christian here. And so people will fake it to get those cultural advantages. There is no such advantage at Princeton. And so you know who you're dealing with. Right? The first girl that he did, that he did a writing seminar with, he was partnering with a girl from New York. And again, this is, this is a Princeton student. And when she sat down with Benjamin, she said, I've never met anyone that actually believes in God. 18 years old. Lived in New York City. Benjamin was the first person she met that ever actually believed in God. She said, you actually believe in God. I actually believe in God, Jesus. Yep. You're the first person I've ever met. That's, that's the world that's here. 
It's not, it's not coming, by the way. By the way right? It, it's here. She, she's going to be a, some kind of powerful thing. Right? You go through Princeton, they put people in power. That's the generation that's in power. Doesn't know people who believe in God. Isn't that wild? Ungodly. Ungodly. We were God's enemies. Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. How do you, how do, you deal with your enemies? I do with mine pretty hatefully, right? At least in my bad moments. Right? My, my good moments, I pray for them because that's what the Lord asked me to do, right? And that's what we should do. And while we were, because while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And so we should do no less if we follow his example. And we were powerless, weak, unable to save ourselves, right? We, you tried to save yourself yet? How's that work? Not, not so good, right? We are weak and powerless, right? The, the, the most powerful. There, there's no reason for him to have had mercy and grace on us. We're going to be here until Friday, so I'm going to speed up. Um, all right, we can be generous right toward those who consider worthy. Uh, we can be generous toward those we consider worthy of our affection and respect. Right, the unique majesty of God's love lies in the combination of three factors, namely that Christ died for us. God A was giving Himself. B even to the horrors of sin, bearing death on a cross, and C doing so for His undeserving enemies. Objectively in history and subjectively in experience, we see God's love for us demonstrated again and again. The integration of the historical ministry of God's Son on the cross with the contemporary ministry of the Spirit in our hearts is one of the most wholesome and satisfying features of the gospel. All right. We will be saved through Christ. Salvation has past, present, and future tenses. Right in verse 9 and 10 are classic examples of the tensions between the already and the not yet. He uses two expressions for the future salvation he has in mind. First, first and negatively, we shall, shall quote, be, be, quote, saved by him from the wrath of God. We have one sense in which we have already been rescued from it, in the sense that, we, that through the cross, God himself turned it away. So we are now at peace with him and are standing in his grace. But we also will be saved from the judgment in that last day, when his wrath will be poured out. For as Jesus said, he, the believer, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Right, John 5, 24. Second and positively, we are saved by his life. We share in his life now, and we will share in his resurrection in the last day. Paul elaborates this extensively in chapter 8, which we're going to get to here in a few weeks. Um, Paul assures us of this future with the much more arguments. We are justified in verse 9, reconciled in verse 10, and our salvation is much more. Right? Paul also stresses the costliness of these things by his blood, verse 9, shed in sacrifice at the cross, so that while we were still enemies, we were reconciled. The argument is this, if God has done the difficult things, right, the cross, we can trust him to do the comparatively simple things of completing the task. Right? If he was faithful on the cross, what makes you think he's not going to be faithful? Now, I had a buddy whose, whose wife passed away. Uh, gosh, got to be 15 years ago. And he, he, she'd passed away a couple years. We were sitting at the table with, with another friend. And he goes, man, I'm just, I'm just not going to find, find anybody like, like, my, like my wife. And my buddy said, so God blessed you with, with your wife, right? 
Yeah. So what makes you think he's going to stop blessing you now? And I think about that a lot when I face things that are hard and difficult, right? What makes you think God is going to stop blessing you now? Right? You see how he's acted in the past, right? You know how faithful he's been. And yet still, right, we come to those edges and we go, I wonder if he's going to be faithful now. Right? How ridiculous is that? All right. Let's see. All right, we rejoice in God. This is parallel to the Jewish attitude condemned in 2.17, which I think is hysterical. The verb, noun, and preposition are all the same, right? For the Christian, exalting in God is quite different from the Jewish bragging about him. The latter boast in God as their exclusive property, and they had a monopoly interest in him. The Christian boasting is the opposite. Christian exaltation in God begins with recognizing who God is, his infinite mercy and goodness. Then with shame-faced recognition that we have no claim at all, we continue to wondering worship that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for us and ends with the humble confidence that he will complete the work he began. So to exalt in God is to rejoice not in our privileges, but in his mercies, not in our possession of him, but in his possession of us, right? You don't have to hold on to God because he's holding on to you. Praise be to God, right? The major mark of believers is joy, especially joy in God and himself. We should be the most positive people in the world. The new community of Jesus Christ is characterized not by a self-centered triumphalism, but by a God-centered worship. We good? Next section. Y'all hanging with me? Okay, y'all look, y'all look like we're doing good. Don't see anybody praying yet, or I assume that's praying. Um, all right. Romans 12, 12, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those who were sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
As one trespass has led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by one man's obedience, the many would be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's a staggering statement. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? That's good stuff. That is Good stuff. All right, the two humanities, right, in Adam and in Christ. Romans to this point has looked, like the, looked at the depths of human depravity and the heights of divine mercy. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And Abraham is the father of us all. This anticipates the structure of the next section of this chapter. Therefore, links the first and second sections of the chapter, indicating that these next verses follow logically in Paul's argument. We look at two particular links between the sections. First, Paul has attributed our reconciliation and salvation to the death of God's Son, back in verse 9 and 10. How is this so? How can so many owe so much to one person, Jesus? Paul answers this in the contrast between Adam and Jesus, as both demonstrate that many can be affected for good or bad, by one person's actions. Second is that both conclude with through our Lord Jesus Christ, verses 11 and 21. Paul will present Adam and Christ in such a way as to demonstrate the overwhelming superiority of the work of Christ. This section is very condensed and it has led some to confusion. Some see it more, and this is kind of the way I've thought of it, it's more of a well-chiseled sculpture or a carefully constructed musical composition. This section of Romans is critical to our reading of the first chapters of Genesis and breaks materially with the rabbinic traditions of the time. Um, yeah, and this is another this is a quote from, the, from a commentary. The text divides itself naturally into three short paragraphs in which, each of which, Adam and Christ are related to each other, although with significant differences. First, in 12 through 14, Adam and Christ are introduced. Adam is responsible for sin and death and as, quote, a pattern of the one to come, unquote, in 14, who is Christ. Secondly, 15 through 17, Adam and Christ are contrasted. In each of these three verses, the work of Christ is said to be either not like Adam's or much more successful than his. Thirdly, in 18 through 21, Adam and Christ are compared. The structure is now, in 18, 19, and 21, is just da-da-da, so also. For though through one man's deed, Adam's disobedience or Christ's obedience, the many have either been cursed or blessed. So Adam and Christ are introduced, right? Verse 12 starts with an incomplete idea that's later completed in verses 18 and 19. The topic of verse 12 is sin and death, right? And Paul describes the downward steps or stages of deterioration in human history from one man sinning to all men dying, right? First, centered sin entered the world through one man. Second, death entered the world through sin. Third, in this way, death came to all men. The stages from Adam's sin to Adam's death to death for all men through universal sin. But what is the meaning of death spread to all men through, as all spent? Uh, grammatically, there's two possibilities. And this has actually been debated back in church history, which we talked about. Um, grammatically speaking, we have two possibilities. All sinned by copying and repeating Adam's sin, or all sinned when Adam sinned and were included in his sinning. The first case is ar argued by... Pelagius, Pelagius, right, Pelagius, 
who, who we remember from church history, right, who denied original sin, taught a form of self-salvation, and was opposed by Augustine. Several other theologians make arguments supporting the view. The view that all sinned and through Adam and therefore all died, although theologically difficult, is surely exegetically correct. Paul makes three points to argue this latter trans interpretation. Um, and it's from verse 13 and 14, right? First, before the Mosaic law, sin was in the world, right? I don't think that's very controversial. Yeah, I think we got to get that one down. Second, but sin is not taken into account, i.e. punished, where there is no law. Without the law to identify sin, sin was not reckoned against sinners. Third, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses over those who did not sin by breaking a specific, explicit command as Adam did, right? Death is the consequence of sin. And since all, rather than Enoch who walked with God, died between Adam and Moses, they were under Adam's sin. All died because all sinned in and through Adam, the representative or federal head of the human race. The second argument is the wider context of verses 15 through 19, five times in five verses, once in each verse. Paul states that the trespass or disobedience of one man brought death, judgment, or condemnation to all men. The language varies slightly in each verse, but it's clinched in verse 15, where many died through one man's trespass. Right? The third argument relates to the analogy between Adam and Christ and between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. If death comes to all because they are all in Adam's sin, then by analogy, life comes to all because they are all righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. That turns salvation on its head. Our justification comes from Christ alone. As we are condemned on account of what Adam did, so we are justified on account of what Christ did. These three arguments from text, context, and analogy seem decisively in support of the latter explanation. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, God has always dealt with mankind through a head and representative. The whole story of the human race can be subbed up, summed up in terms of what happened because of Adam and what has happened and will yet happen because of Christ. This argument is exegetically correct, but it is theologically and personally meaningful. Right? Can we accept the teaching as Paul did? The concept of our having sinned in Adam is diametrically opposed to the mindset of Western individualism, right? right? It always right, bugged you when you were in group projects and that one dude wouldn't do his stuff. Amen? Right? So we, we get this, right? That there's, this, that there's some kind of collective thing that bugs us, right? But, but we are subordinate to Scripture, Right? We are subordinate to Scripture. So if Scripture says this is the way it works, this is how it works. It goes back to what do you believe reality is? Right? We believe reality is what God says it is. It's his world, we're just living in it to some degree, right? It is what God said it is. Um, many outside the West take for granted the collective solidarity of the extended family, tribe, nation, and ethnicity and therefore have far less cultural opposition to this teaching. A lot of places understand that. We see this several places in the Old Testament, particularly, I like, right, I like Achan, right, who stole some of Jericho's treasure, which God decreed to devote to destruction. And we read that, quote, the Israelites acted unfaithfully, <coughs> unquote, and, quote, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. The nation was implicit in Achan's sin. That doesn't seem right, right? That are, that are, that, that, that's what I, but that's what's really, that's what's true, 
right? That's what God said, right? Israel sinned, God said, and they have violated my covenant. Um, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zadbi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Wow. Right? Most evidently, we see this at the cross. We like to identify with Pilate, right, who washed his hands and declared his innocence. We were not guilty and had nothing to do with this. The apostles disagree. Not only did Herod and Pilate, Gentiles and Jews, conspire against Jesus, but the sins which led to his death are our sins too. If we turn away from God, we crucify the Son of God all over again. Right? That's Hebrews 6, 6. Right? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The Negro spiritual asked, where were you when they crucified my Lord? The only possible answer is not only were we there, we were participants. We also see the cross as the sacrifice made for us. How can his death of long ago benefit us? One answer, especially developed by Paul, is that believers have become identified with Christ in his death and resurrection, and so have died and risen with him. We are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died by the union with him, and live for him who died for them. And was raised again. When we reach Romans 6, we'll encounter the same, same truth and go into a little more detail. The paragraph ends with the briefest possible allusion to the corresponding figure of Christ. For now, it's enough to say that Adam was a typos, that's the Greek word, of Christ because he prefigured and foreshadows him. Like Adam, Christ is the head of whole, the whole humanity. So Adam and Christ are contrasted. The tie is weak, though we have superficial similarity between Adam and Christ, in that each one man, through whose deed numerous people, or enormous numbers of people, have been affected. The correspondence is an antithesis, not a parallel, right? These are not equals, right? They're being shown as opposite examples. Verse 15 through 17 embodies a statement that Christ's gift is either not like Adam's trespass or is much more effective than it. The differences concern the nature of the two actions, the immediate results, and their ultimate effect. The nature was different, but the free gift is not like the trespass. This succinct assertion is almost a text for the rest of the paragraph. Adam's trespass was a fall, indeed the fall as we call it, a de deviation from the path which God had clearly shown him. He insisted on going his own way. With it, Paul contrasts Christ's gift, right, his charisma, with an act of self-sacrifice which bears no resemblance to Adam's act of self-assertion. It is this enormous disparity which Paul elaborates on in the rest of the verse. If the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and consequent gift, presumably of eternal life, right, from 623, overflow in rich, undeserved abundance to the many? The immediate effect was different, and the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. Now this, this is parallel right to the, to the previous verse, but brings into view the consequences of each action. Condemnation on one hand and justification on the other. The contrast is absolute. 
right? God's adjustment allowed only one sin, but God's gift followed many trespasses, right? Our, our, our minds, right, would expect that many sins attract more judgment than one sin, but grace operates in different arithmetic. The accumulated sins and guilt of all age, ages are answered by God's free gift, the miracle of miracles and beyond any hope of comprehension we have. The ultimate effect was different. Once more, Adam and Jesus are juxtaposed. And so they end up with the results end, end in, of death and life. Death reigned through one man. But note the subtle change for those who receive the abundance and grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Right? Formerly death was our king. And we were slaves under his tyranny. What Christ has done is not just exchange death's kingdom for a much more gentle kingdom of life while leaving us in the position of subjects. Instead, he delivers us from the rule of death so radically as to enable us to change places with it and rule over it or reign in life in Christ Jesus. Do you get the difference? Once death reigned, and now we will reign in life through Christ Jesus. That's just, that's just mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. Um, Adam and Christ compare, right? So verses 20, 19 through 21 emphasize the parallel while not overlooking the contrast. The structure in each verse is meant to highlight the similarity between Adam and Christ. The one act of one man determined the destiny of many. Verse 18 takes up the immediate results of the work for Adam and Christ, right? Extending from verse 16, namely condemnation and justification. And the emphasis is on the parallel here. Right, verse 19 takes up the nature of the actions as in verse 15, though using different language. Verse 15 was trespass and gift. This is obedience and disobedience. The, the emphasis, again, is on the parallel. Made, made sinners and made righteous are notions of their legal status before God. Again, Dr. Jones says, right, look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that. Though you have done nothing, you were declared righteous. Verse 20 is a digression, but necessary one as some want to include Moses in the structure, but that would be a complete misunderstanding of the role of the law. Christ and Adam are such opposites that there's no place for a third. The law came so that the trespass may increase. I think that's fascinating. The law reveals sin and turns sin into transgression. Right? Romans 7, 8 adds that the law even provokes sin. This must have been shocking to the Jewish people who thought that the law of Moses as having been given to increase righteousness. Right? They thought the law was to increase righteousness and instead what it does is it shows how evil we really are. <laughs> that we can't save ourselves. Isn't that wild? Yet Paul says the law increases sin rather than diminishing it, provoking it rather than preventing it. So God has made ample provision for the increase of sin by the increase of grace. Let me read that again. God has made ample provision for the increase of sin by the increase of grace. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
The introduction of grace introduces Paul's third comparison between Adam and Christ, in which he takes up the ultimate issues of life and death. Verse 21 makes no explicit naming of Adam, but he certainly lurks in the references to sin and death. The parallel compares two of the kinds of reign. God's purpose is that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness and eternal life. Nothing could sum up the blessings of being in Christ better than the reign of grace. For grace forgives, and this is a quote out of, out of another out of Stott. For grace forgives sins through the cross and bestows on the sinner both righteousness and eternal life. Grace satisfies the thirsty soul and fills the hungry with good things. Grace sanctifies sinners, shaping them in the image of Christ. Grace perseveres even with the recalcitrant, it determining to complete what is begun. And one day, grace will destroy death and consummate the kingdom. So when we are convinced that grace reigns, we will remember that God's throne is a throne of grace and will come to it boldly to receive mercy and to find grace for every need. And all this is through Jesus Christ our Lord, that is through his death and resurrection, the same reference to the mediation of Jesus Christ also concluded the, concluded the previous paragraph. We'll conclude the next three chapters as well. Isn't that pretty cool? All right, so the goodness of God. We have peace with God, right? I wrote seriously. That's, 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 that's hard to believe, right? Given who I know what I am, right? That's the theodicy question, why bad things happen to good people. As, yeah, I can't think. It's Bodie Bauckham, right, that says, that's not really what bothers me. What bothers me is knowing what I thought and did yesterday, how the good Lord let me wake up this morning. Right? <laughs> that's the miracle. Right? That's the miracle that he would have grace on a sinner like me. Right? That's, 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 the, that's the miracle. So we rest in this reality. We let our striving cease. Right? We are in a season of peace no matter our circumstances. That's the reality of where we are. That's the reality of where we live. Right? That's the reality of where we live. We can take joy in our sufferings. As Christ suffered, so we will suffer when we faithfully follow the gospel. We know that suffering has a purpose to the glory of God and generates maturity in us in the meantime. Right? It enables us to help one another, to help brothers and sisters. Right? It enables us to not be afraid to know where the true power lies, to know how faithful God is and how much God loves us, right? And Christ is the greater Adam, right? The grace of God is much more, much more than our sin, much more than the darts and arrows of the enemy. Grace reigns. We good? Easy questions, right? Ish. Fantastic. All right. Oh, man, there were no questions, and then I punched it, and everything came up. Um, how long did it take Paul to write Romans? I have no idea. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know that we have that doc. I've not seen that document anywhere. Uh, hey, governor. Oh, man, we appoint, we, who will you appoint to co-teach when Jay leaves? I don't know, right now I'm going to teach, can I give you what, after, after Jay heads up to Brentwood, I'm going to teach by myself, if that's okay with you guys, uh, for, a, for a bit. Um, my guess is we'll have a new pastor call, my, my guess is we'll have a new pastor call sometime this fall, 
Um, I don't know that. Maybe maybe later, but sometime this fall. And then when he comes in, I'm going to do whatever he asks me to do. Um, I will I will submit to, to if he wants me to keep teaching, I'll keep teaching. If he wants to teach instead of me, teach with me. I'll be glad to submit to whatever whatever he, he wants to do. So my guess is I'll probably be teaching teaching on my own for a little bit. If y'all don't again, if y'all don't mind or rebel or, um, and then we'll just see. We'll kind of see where the Lord leads. That's that's kind of all I've been doing. Uh, suffering the result of our sin sometimes. Sometimes Paul says, right, "Is it Pete that says it's better to suffer for doing good than doing evil?" You're gonna, you're gonna suffer either way, um, right? So as as my as Benjamin has said, don't don't suffer for being stupid. That's not God's fault, right? That's not God's fault. Um, but we will suffer when we do good things, right? Sometimes you'll encounter the most resistance when you're doing what God. That's that's my my qualms with people that say, "Well, God opens a door, and I follow the path of least resistance." That's not how God usually works, because there's an active, intelligent enemy, right? I kept thinking about Job, Benjamin. And I went through Job because Benjamin and I are current little kind of discussion over the past month has been Job is theodicy. And if that's true, then God's answer, and this is not completely thought out, so you're welcome to blast me. Don't do it to the question, just come up and personally blast me. Um, right, that, that if so, God's kind of answer to Job is come back when you can make a whale. Right? Right? And that's highly unsatisfying. Yeah, I don't know about y'all. So Benjamin and I kind of been circling back and forth on kind of how, how, does, that, how does that work and how does that land. Um, let's see. Is suffering the result of sin? Some might be, some might not, right? Drunkenness leads to suffering. Leukemia victim is there suffering due to sin. But, and, and that goes into kind of a deal. There's a sin that's the brokenness of the world, right? And so the reason we have sickness and death is because of sin loosed in the world. I'm sorry that my microphone keeps moving around. Mostly to Brady because he's probably getting... Away with me. All right, um, and he's doing a fantastic job. Um, let's see, who created the basic outline print here? I really like that. It was Stott. Uh, this is mostly lifted from Stott. I think I have that down in a footnote. Um, I try to confess my sin. Um, it, yeah, I don't plagiarize, but I mean, I, the, the, he, I'm a huge Stott fan. If, I want to be like, uh, like Jesus, obviously, but if I get to grow up here, I'd kind of like to be like John Stott. He passed away back in 2012. Um, and just has a fantastic way of um, structuring and relating understanding of Scripture. And I, I hope to be as an effective a teacher as he was uh, because he does things, like you say, this outline is just fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and, and that's fully lifted from Stott. Um, no questions why. Let's see, why is it that salvation and individual act and why is sin corporate? Well, sin's not necessarily corporate. There's also individual sin. Um, we sin both, but sin, sin, is, sin is dealt with corporately, whereas salvation is dealt with individually. Um, sin is also dealt with personally. I mean, God has had, I've had consequences for my sin, right? I've done stupid things, and the resulting consequences have, they have gotten to me. Uh, where, where's the Slido room number? I don't know. You're in the Slido room. <laughs> it's kind of odd. Um, Paul wrote this during three months. He stayed in Corinth. Okay, good. So I had an answer. I love it when my when people already have an answer to this. Uh, off subject question: When, where do we pick up the T-shirts for Sunday night? I have no idea. I didn't even know there were T-shirts. Uh, one could say that Adam was the first man, but Jesus is the true man. That's one one thing to look at. Uh, see if if sin if sin is not counted where there is no law, is a person who had never heard the law of gospel 
under either. Well, there, there was death, right? Death reigned from Adam. That's the whole point, right? Death reigned from Adam to Moses. So they were under the consequences of sin. While they weren't against an explicit sin like Adam stepped out against, they were obviously under the consequences of sin because everybody died other than Enoch already was swept up and whatnot. But yeah, so they were obviously under the, under the consequences of sin. Uh, let's see. What about those who died under the law before Jesus' crucifixion? Thinking of the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews, Old Testament men and women. Well, yeah, well, well right, right, Big Mo came back, right, at the, at the transfiguration. You kind of wonder how they knew who each other was. There weren't photographs. Did they have name tags? Did they do a meet and greet beforehand? Right? How do you know it was Moses? Right? And it was Elijah. You kind of wonder. Right? But, but obviously the Old Testament, they were lurking around somewhere because they showed up. So there, there's more to it than, than, than we know, right? There's more to it than we know. Uh, since abortion is legal in this nation, are we guilty of abortion? Um, I, you know, that's, yeah, I was going to say, wow, <laughs> can I wait out the clock? Um, no, I mean, are we guilty of abortion? You know, there, God's judgment comes down on people. And, and on nations and on, you know, and I don't know when it's God's judgment and, you know, the Lord doesn't give us that discernment. Um, you know, and I grit abortion is a hot blood, hot button issue. There's so much disobedience to scripture. The way we treat the, the poor, the way we treat foreigners, the way we treat widows and orphans. Have you looked at how orphans are being treated? That's certainly, abortion is certainly a problem. I don't know that it's our greatest. When I look at how the Christian community disobeys what God directly tells us to do, right? You know, and like I said, I don't want to de-emphasize, I'm not trying to make light or de-emphasize that. But what I am saying is look in the mirror and look at our disobedience. Look at where we're failing God, right? Get the board out of our own eye, right? And then let's deal with the splinter in somebody else's. Right? The widow, the orphan, and the sojourner, guys. Widow, orphan, and sojourner. You know how many times, I mean, I, again, I taught Deuteronomy for five years, verse by verse, torturing young adults. Right? And I got to tell you, man, widow, orphan, and sojourner. Widow, orphan, and sojourner. When you look, right, you see, Ms. Reed, right, the work that you do, right, with the senior adults, how beautiful it is, right? And that's, that's godly. That's what God commands us to do. Why are there lonely people? in senior adult homes. Why on earth? Right? Why, why are there kids that don't have homes? If we're God's people, right? Are you worried about the people who are among us? Right? And again, I'm, try, I'm not trying to minimize this, but, but let's, let's just be honest, right? And honestly talk about what you and I are supposed to be doing. And I'm as guilty as y'all. I mean, this is not a me pointing. Please don't take this as me pointing fingers. This is us. Right? This is us chickens. Right? As, my, as granddaddy said. And so I guess I would, I would stop and reflect on what the Bible calls you and me to do. And let's get that board out of our own eyes. Is that good? And slider just disappeared. I get to call that divine providence. Uh... And that's from last week. That's even more fun. 
Okay, well, I've lost the slider from this week, so I apologize. Jordan, the last one was, what is your favorite physical constant? My favorite physical constant? Well, what does it mean, but it's like Well, I, I like the Fibonacci number. Um, it, it's actually how Mike Glenn and I got to be friends, the, the pastor up at the church. I get a call one day, and it's always bad when you don't personally know the pastor and your cell phone rings and he's who shows up on the caller ID. And so he said, Brian, I'm, I'm getting ready to give a, I want to open a sermon example with the Fibonacci numbers. And can, can you give me kind of a summary? And so I spent about a day and I sent him back enough research to do a master's thesis. And so he called me and he said, you understand I'm trying to do a two minute cute introduction to a sermon, right? Not write a thesis. I was like, well, I mean, just in case. Um, and so that was actually the Fibonacci numbers, how Mike and I got to be friends. Um, him asking me on that. So, we good? We good? Was this helpful? And this is good stuff. This stuff. We're doing six next week. This is this is fun, fantastic. Uh, let's let's pray and let's pray and go home. <sighs> Father, forgive us. For often we don't know what we're doing. Find us faithful, Father. Find us living the truth that we have peace with you. Find us living the truth that we stand in your grace. Find us living in the truth that we have nothing to fear and that we can love without a, with, with abandon because that's our job, right? Love God and love others as we love ourselves. Our job is love. It's not wrath, right? It's not condemnation. It's love. And so, Father, find us a loving people. Tender, make our hearts tender. Let us be peacemakers. Let us follow Christ's example and let us suffer for, for, for what is good. And Father, let that suffering lead us into maturity and that maturity into hope and a hope that will not bring us to shame. Change us, Father. Don't let us be the same people that walked in that leave. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you all.